It's time for Fed Talk, the live show for Feds in the Know. From federal agencies to Capitol Hill, the attorneys of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth bring in experts from across the federal community to bring you inside the issues. Fed Talk is meant to provide general information about legal issues. However, the views expressed in this program are not intended to provide legal counseling. Listeners are cautioned not to rely upon any statements made in resolving legal issues they may face, but instead to consult with their own attorney about specific situations. Attorneys are not engaged in providing legal services while appearing on the program and are not responsible in any manner for the consequences that may stem directly or indirectly from reliance on any statement made during this program. Good morning and welcome to Fed Talk. I'm Jenny Mattingly, and today I am joined by Two folks with me in the studio. We've got Jeff Neal, who's Senior Vice President at ICF International, and also the author of the blog ChiefHRO.com, and Henry Romero, Senior Advisor at Federal Management Partners. Thank you for being here, both of you. And then on the phone with us, we have Robert Goldenkoff. He's a director with GAO. He's on their Strategic Issues team. And everyone is here today to discuss the recent GAO report on federal employee performance. And I guess poor performers is... One of the titles. Robert, are you with us? Uh, yes, I am. Thank Great. you for having me on your show this morning. Thank you for being here. And just a quick reminder for our listeners that Fed Talk is brought to you by Long Term Care Partners as the new Fed Talk sponsor for 2015. Long Term Care Partners administers the Office of Personnel Management sponsored federal long term care insurance program. Well, thank you everybody for being here. We're talking about a report that's gotten quite a bit of press over the last week or two and something that probably we've all talked about quite a bit over the years. It's not a new issue of dealing with poor performers. And Robert, you were one of the chief architects, I guess, of the report. Uh, and I'm hoping you could tell us a little bit about what the report is, where it came from, and what you found. Sure, I'd be happy to do so. Um, we completed this study uh, for uh, Senator Ron Johnson. And he's the chairman of the Senate Committee on Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs. And he wanted us to examine the ability of agencies to address poor performance. And as he said, um, managing employee performance, this has been an issue um, that goes back decades. Um, and there's just been this longstanding concern that the processes for addressing poor performers are complex and time-consuming, and that agencies need to do more to address substandard employee performance. Um, you know, and, and the thing is, regardless of the accuracy of those perceptions, it's clearly having an impact on employees' faith in the, in the performance management system. And you can see that, for example, um, in the uh, 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 most recent Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey, where just 28 percent of respondents um, agreed with the statement that steps are being taken to uh, deal with poor performance at their agency. So, you know, this is why it, it, this issue is so important. It not only affects agencies' ability to do their work and carry out their mission, but it also affects employee morale. And it's certainly been getting a lot of play in both Capitol Hill and in the media. It's certainly an issue that's at the forefront of, of everybody's mind. So this is a timely report in that. And you looked at really sort of a subset of issues in this report. Well, yeah, um, you know, it, it, is, it is such a, a big area, but um, we, we focused on, on three key areas. First, we described the processes for addressing poor performance. Um, we also discussed the issues that can affect an agency's response to poor performance and dealing with um, poor performers. And then third, we, we assessed the extent to which OPM's various tools and resources um, are meeting agencies' needs. And what exactly, in looking at some of those issues, I know in terms of you looked at a couple different barriers to dealing with poor performers. Um, probationary period was clearly a big one. Training, uh, some of those issues. Could you ex elaborate on those a little bit? Well, well, sure. Um, I think most importantly, it starts with um, good supervisors and effective supervision, um, uh, uh, effective performance management, uh, and and good supervisors. Um, you know, and and that's just not only for poor performers. But, but everybody within an agency, um, you know, a good supervisor can help an average employee become great, and also they can help a poor performer get back on track and, and improve their, their performance. Uh, and that's just not happening, um, it, at least not as often as it, as, as it should. Um, performance management is a day-to-day -day activity. Um, it should be an organic process, um, and it's not something that should just happen once or twice a year. Um, and so, you know, the reason why it's not happening, I mean, there's, there's probably a, a number of factors that, that affect it, but, but one reason is um, 
training for supervisors um, is, is not what it needs to be in all cases. Um, and also, um, uh, supervisors just don't always have the opportunities to, to um, assess the full range of employees' performance. One of the things I think you found in the report, and, and you touched on it right there, that has been my mantra for a long time is that the way we assess supervisors and move employees up into supervisory positions, there isn't maybe that strong of an assessment program, not just because you're a great technician doesn't mean you'll be a great supervisor. And then once you get into these positions, there isn't necessarily the training to support you in that role, both doing positive performance management and also dealing with employees when there is some sort of bump in the road. Exactly. It's a, it's a very different set of skills. And just because you're good in your technical job does not make you uh, a, a good people person. And, you know, having the ability to have those um, conversations, those two-way conversations um, with uh, your employees, um, set, setting expectations, providing effective coaching and feedback, um, this needs to be candid, it needs to be two-way, and it has to happen on a, a regular basis. I know one of the issues you also touched on in the report that's that I think is different, we talk a lot about uh, dealing with poor performers in terms of maybe removing a poor performer, but there's also a piece of that that goes into, as I call it, rehabbing the poor, you know, a poor performer, giving an employee a chance to improve, and that's certainly a piece of this puzzle. Well, exactly, and that's what needs to happen first. I mean, dismissing uh, an employee, that's really um, the, the last resort, um, but the, as you said, um, it should really happen upstream uh, in the process, and that's, uh, first of all, setting the clear expectations for employees, providing the, the coaching, um, and if you can do that, um, that can help an employee improve, um, or if that doesn't happen, then um, it's a matter of perhaps encouraging that employee to um, find a better fit within the organization, um, or... Uh, encouraging that employee to um, perhaps leave the agency voluntarily. You know, but the, the bottom line is the importance of dealing with the situation before it becomes problematic. And I know you've looked at a, a variety of agencies across, uh, across the spectrum. It's obviously difficult to look at the entire government as you're comparing practices. But did some agencies, are you finding that some agencies are doing performance management or dealing with poor <clears throat> performers in a better or more unique way than other agencies? Well, we did, and we, we only looked at a, a handful of agencies specifically. Um, uh, most of the work that we did was on a, a government-wide basis. But we did find, for example, that some agencies have a, um, uh, a two-track career progression for supervisors, where um, you know, one track could be supervisors who, um, just, well, actually, who, who don't supervise people, but they're good at their technical job but, but actually don't wind up um, uh, in the performance management area because they're just happy doing their, their technical job. And then the other track being a, a supervisory position where they actually will be responsible for uh, supervising employees. So that's one option that could um, have implications government-wide. Um, we also found that um, you know, in some cases, well, it, it's important to use the probationary period effectively. Um, and one reason why agencies weren't always doing that is because some supervisors didn't know when the probationary period ended. Um, people were just slipping through the cracks for various reasons. They may have had multiple supervisors, um, or um, in some cases, there's just a lot of training involved with the employee. So some agencies are using a uh, notification system. So an alert comes up when they, the one-year probationary period is coming to an end. There's an alert that comes up, and then the supervisor provides uh, an affirmative response of whether to uh, uh, convert that individual to a permanent position or dismiss them. Um, and so that's another promising practice that uh, other agencies might look at. Well, and that's the interesting thing is a lot of these promising practices, they also aren't new, but they are things that agencies could certainly put in place without without needing a complete revamp or overhaul of, of structures as well. And were there other, in terms of recommendations, were there other things that the GAO found maybe proactive solutions? Uh, well, uh, yes. And we, we mentioned uh, the probationary period. Um, another thing that can be looked at is uh, for, for certain positions, um, having um, longer probationary periods. You know, some of the things that federal employees do, they're complex in nature, and it takes um, more than a year um, to demonstrate all the different competencies for, for that position. You know, for example, research positions, there's data collection, there's analysis, there's writing up the results, and that can take longer than 
a, than the than a, a one-year probationary period. So in those cases, it may make sense to um, exchange to extend the probationary period. So um, all facets of um, the requirements for that position can be demonstrated. Um, we also found the need for OPM to uh, provide um, better guidance uh, and and resources for managers to use. I mean, OPM does put a lot of material out there. Um, in some cases, the, the content um, wasn't meeting the, the need of supervisors. Um, we were told by, by um, some experts we spoke to that it was written more for um, uh, lawyers or for human resource specialists as opposed to supervisors. So that's uh, another uh, action that OPM can take. I think you certainly hit on a lot of issues that I know I've heard about over the years that uh, in terms of supervisors dealing with that. And really, you know, the idea of training probationary period, those have come up in a number of GAO reports and a number of MSPB, I think, has had reports on this. Uh, training in itself, I've seen in a number of IG reports recently. So it's, uh, while it's not a new issue, certainly seems to be gaining some traction lately. And and I don't know if um, if you have some other reports out there that have that you're aware of that may be helpful in fleshing out this topic? Well, um, we do have a, a related report that we issued back in, in January that um, uh, actually was a report that we did on the SES performance management system. And in that report, we found out that OPM and agencies need to, to do more to ensure that meaningful distinctions are being made in SES ratings and performance awards. So if you take these two reports together, um, they, they focus on, on the, the importance of effective performance management, basically holding individuals uh, accountable for key organizational outcomes. Um, so, you know, and it, it happens at all levels. It needs to be done at all levels in the organization. It's, it starts with the, your senior executives and then cascades down to your rank-and-file employees. Right, and if you're not holding folks accountable for performance and not applying the performance management system properly, it's very tough to deal with people in both a, a positive and negative way. And that's, that's, I think, a good message for agencies is to look at these reports and, you know, there is some good information out there. You're absolutely right. And it's, it's not a matter of dealing with poor performers. It's just dealing with performance on a daily basis of all your employees, your, your top-notch employees, your middle employees, as well as your, your poor performers. If, if, you, if, you know, if you wait till employees it gets to the point where they actually have substandard uh, performance, um, it's pretty late in the day. Well, Robert, I appreciate you being on here. I think we're going to stop on that word of good advice. We have to take our, our first break of the show, and I really appreciate you joining us to give us an overview of this report. Well, thank you very much. Great. Thank you. And you are listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. We'll continue our discussion after this break and a word from our sponsor. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Today we're featuring a discussion on federal employee performance and the implications of the recent GAO report. We just heard Robert Goldenkoff from GAO do a great overview of this report on performance, and he also noted that there was a recent report on SES performance management. Both of poor performers and SES performance have been real hot topics <laughs> lately across uh, Capitol Hill and within the federal workforce. And, you know, Henry, Jeff, you guys both have very uh, long-term careers doing HR work, having to actually administer performance management systems and oversee them. And and you really do have an inside look at, at how this works. And I'm I'm curious, this isn't a new issue. We've, we've been talking about this a little bit off the air here. There's not a lot that's new, but some of it's still relevant. I mean, are these issues you've been seeing for same issues or is there anything different here? Most of these are issues we've been seeing for a very long time. And one of the last things we heard from GAO was this this idea that agencies need to do a better job making meaningful distinctions in performance. And, and what that really boils down to is is this idea that some people have 
that you should have a performance management system where you have a normal distribution of ratings with most people being average and some people being above average and a tiny number being outstanding. I think that's absurd. And the, the reason I do is we don't just hire a cross-section of people. We try to hire people who are really bright and who are well-qualified and who will excel. If, if we have a good hiring process, which is frankly the very best performance management process, bringing the right people into the organization, if we have a good hiring process and say Henry or I are great selecting officials and we select 10 people, they do a fantastic job. They do everything that's expected of them and more. They are excelling. Telling me that I should make meaningful distinctions between them and try to come up with some way to say, well, some of you are average and some of you are great, to me seems to be silly. I, I, should, be, I should be striving for an organization full of people who excel, not for an organization full of average people. You know, it's interesting because I say something similar when I'm working on SES issues and people say, too many senior executives are receiving outstanding ratings. I say, well, it's a very high bar to get into the SES in the first place. So you would hope that most of those people are receiving outstanding ratings. Otherwise, we got a problem with how people are getting into the system. And that's that's your point exactly. Right. And uh, just as we're talking about how there is a high bar to get into the SES, the assumption being that uh, you've paid your dues and you've demonstrated that you can excel at whatever uh, your field is, and therefore we're selecting you know, uh, some of the best people in government into these higher-level jobs, I think it applies at the entry level and the lower levels as well. And I agree uh, with Jeff's comment about the whole hiring process. Uh, I'd like to make the point that uh, dealing with poor performance that it's not an isolated issue, that it's not something you tackle uh, in and of itself, and that the notion of uh, performance management is linked to all other HR systems. It's part of the hiring process, it's part of the maintenance process, it's part of the supervisor selection process. And I think, uh, as Jeff said, the key thing is selecting good people to begin with. And I think one of the key areas where the federal government falls short is the whole screening and assessment process in the first place. Uh, we all, all hear all these reports about uh, how long it takes to hire somebody, but we're certainly not uh, spending all that time screening and assessing uh, because I would think that a goal would be let's get the best people who are the best fit and perhaps that will minimize the risk or will minimize the number of people that wind up being not good fits eventually. But I don't think we spend hardly any uh, uh, effort at all in doing proper screening and assessment of employees in the first place. I think that's what I see in the private sector, now that I'm gone from government, is that there is a lot of investment in good, by good companies in making sure they get the right person. Well, it's a lot of money and time spent bringing somebody in the door and getting them up to speed. So from a private sector perspective, why would you want to spend all that time and money if you're just going to have to let them go? Right. You want to get I mean, the right talent, get them into the right job. If you have things that you need to develop, then you provide training for them to do that. But the, the best training program, the best performance management program is a good hiring process. And most of us would agree that the federal hiring process is certainly not um, a good hiring process and is probably a barely acceptable one at best. Well, and then you cap that off with a lot of these, what I call disincentives coming lately mm -hmm. of, why would somebody even want to go into the government in the first place? There's a lot of, you know, this talk about firing federal employees, the talk about getting rid of bonuses, all this this sort of negativity around it. In my perspective, I'm afraid you don't even get those good people trying to come in the door. So it's even more critical to make sure you are getting right. those, the correct people. And what a lot of people have found is that the hiring process doesn't end with just ultimately selecting somebody and putting them in the job. It's how you monitor them, how you nurture them in those first few critical months. And, and you know, we're talking about the probationary period. Well, part of that period should be how you're dealing with a new employee and how a supervisor is interacting with that employee and making sure that they are going to be a good fit, that they are learning the ropes. They, are, they know what the job's about. They know what the mission is. And that goes back then to the whole issue that was uh, cited in the GAO report about supervisor training. I think most of our supervisors are not equipped to do that. Uh, we focus training them on mechanics, on the rules, 
uh, even here in the in the case of performance management, making sure they know the right rules and the distinction between Title 43 and Title 75 procedures and what's performance and what's conduct. But the real good supervisors that you want, I would think, would be the ones that are going to be leaders, motivators, people that are going to help the employees come along. And that's something we don't teach them. In fact, I think we're reluctant to because they're considered soft skills Mm -hmm. and we're afraid that in a political environment people are going to criticize us uh, for spending money on teaching people these soft skills just like they get criticized for going to conferences. Right. Well, it's funny because soft skills, I talked to, uh, I sit on an employee engagement work group and the one thing that Bill Dugan, who's Nephi's president, always says is employee engagement is communication. And I always say, well, that's true, but that's one of those soft skills that nobody wants to really focus on. I always get irritated when I hear those referred to as soft skills because they're actually the hardest skills. Absolutely. And and Henry and I both spent a lot of time working for the Department of the Navy. And the Navy used to do something that I thought was really great. And I would love to see more of it in supervisory training. The, The Navy had a negotiation seminar for labor relations people. And they put you into negotiations. They put you in a setting where you had to negotiate with other people. And, and they brought in people who were very experienced negotiators. So so you could sit across the table from somebody and they could yell at you. They could disagree with you. They could they could do things to, to get you offended. And you could feel what it was like to be in that kind of, of experience. We talk to supervisors a lot about having difficult conversations but we rarely do training for them where we put them in a room and let them go through having a difficult conversation with somebody and then debriefing them on, on what they could do better, what was working, and, and let them feel what it's like. People don't like to have a hard conversation with somebody. It, it absolutely is. They don't want to talk to people about poor performance because it, 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 it's a painful thing to do. Yeah, well, and that is... To me, because as Henry said, we don't spend time. And as you're highlighting there, some agencies have done it. But my fear is that one across the board, it doesn't happen. You know, certainly every agency isn't doing that. And then we have this push lately, no conferences, training budget down. Nobody wants to do anything face to face. And you can't teach this stuff online. It's not a check the box experience. It has to be person to person. And that stuff seems like it's going away if it was ever there in the first place. There, There are some things you can do online. Um, you know, I, I, I know we developed a, a negotiation training course for a client that, that was virtual, where you do it on a computer. And, you, and the, the, the system, it's a virtual reality system that interacts with you based on what you do. So I do think there are some of the, of the hard skills that can be taught using that kind of technology because the technology has advanced so much for for virtual reality. But for the most part, I do think you're you're much better off with in-person training when you're dealing with the hard skills. And you get immediate feedback when yes. it's in person in terms of asking questions, understanding what's going on. And that's certainly, uh, you know, to me, the underlying of the poor performers or performance management in general is I keep my, my take from it was training, training, training. You got to make sure, but it's also hiring, hiring, hiring. You know, you have both. But I think the probationary period, Henry, which you mentioned, is an interesting piece of this because as GAO found, and I've actually heard this for years, you know, most employees have a one-year probationary period where they're basically at will, and in that year they can be let go. But what I've heard from supervisors for years, they have no idea when the probationary period is up. I don't know if that's true or not, but they don't feel they do, and they don't have to make an affirmative assessment of, yes, this person has passed and um, you know, they're ready to move on and reach full journeyman status. And the third piece I've heard from groups like, you know, IRS or Social Security, air traffic controllers, they have up to three years to reach true journeyman status. And for a majority of that eight to nine months, they spend at a training facility someplace. So their supervisor never sees them. So it seems like an interesting tool. I don't know if it's a necessary or useful tool in terms of the probationary period or if it could be done better. Well, I think the GAO report, I think, made a valid point in that there are some occupations and certain uh, work that is done in the government that isn't going to be evident the first year. So uh, I have no problems with the notion of extending probationary period on an occupational basis for certain kinds of jobs, uh, whether it's research scientists or or, uh, research and development engineers or 
certain law enforcement and legal occupations where you're not going to see in the first year uh, uh, evidence of the employee's true capability. But I wouldn't want to see that all of a sudden be categorized as a solution to the problem of performance is giving everybody a two-year probationary period. Right now, when you come up to the uh, 10-month mark at the 12 uh, for a one-year probationary period, and you start panicking about whether you want to release an employee or not, having a two-year probationary period means you would just push that to the 22nd month and you, and you wouldn't have made any difference unless you're using that extra time for the right supervisory uh, responsibilities to assess employees. I also want to make the point that uh, we always talk about the government almost as a, as a monolithic entity when it's not. It, it, it's many governments and there are many parts of the government, there are many agencies where there are cultures and environments where they do want to nurture employees and they do do things that help employees come along better than other agencies. Uh, there's a culture of, of excellence uh, that's more prevalent than you find in other parts of the government. So it's not just one government when we're talking about, you. we don't know how to deal with performers. There are many parts of the government where people are getting put on, on regular performance improvement periods, where people are actually getting fired performance management uh, deficiencies, and it can happen. We, we can't use the crutch that, gee, the laws are too hard or the regulations are too cumbersome. That's why we don't deal with poor performers. Those, those uh, regulations and the law has been around for 30 years, and there are parts of the government that effectively deal within that constraint and do the right thing. Well, and that's, you know, there is no one-size-fits-all. I mean, there's over 2 million employees. You're never going to have one, and I think that's sometimes part of our problem, is we've got one set here and we're looking at hearing just one story or story here or there about where the system didn't work, and we don't hear all those stories where it does. Well, we hear the excuses. You know, people say that I, I can't fire people, the system doesn't allow me. So let's let's use as a little case study quickly the, the probationary period. As you said, they are basically at-will employees for a year. We hardly ever fire anybody during probation. This is the time when all you have to do is say, you're fired, go away. Much easier. And that's it. And for the most part, there are no appeal rights. They don't use it. And some folks will say, well, I don't know when it ends. You know, if, if I really, if I'm a good supervisor and I care about the probationary period and I want to use it properly, most of us have calendars. Most of them are electronic. They're very easy. All I have to do is go in a year from when the person starts and, and put a note that says, or two weeks out or a month out, saying, you know, Henry's probationary period is going to be ending on March 20th next year. It's not that hard to do. Yes, I think the HR offices should give them an advance notice. They should be required to affirmatively state that somebody's completed probation satisfactorily, but they can also handle that themselves. We fire less than two-tenths of one percent. I don't think we should have as a goal how many people we can fire. I, I think that's a, a, a misguided goal. But we don't use the tool that we have. When we have a, a you-can-fire-anybody-for-darn-near-any-reason tool, we don't use it. So if you give them a longer probationary period, Henry's absolutely right. For the most part, people will just delay their decision-making for a year, but they'll, they'll have the same problems. Right. It's this It's... it's, it's it proves that people are not willing to deal with poor performers. It's not that they're unable to. Well, and it goes back to uh, you can give everybody all the tools, but if it's nobody's using them, it doesn't really matter. And on, on that note, we're going to stop here for our mid-show break. And when we come back, we'll continue to talk about the report and some of the things we see that may be positive steps for going forward. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m. Are you a federal or U.S. Postal Service employee or annuitant or an active or retired member of the Uniformed Services? If so, you're eligible to apply for coverage under the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program. The program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Find out how at ltcfeds.com. That's ltcfeds.com. If you're a federal manager, you deal with a lot of information. Here's a tip on breaking through the noise. Join the Federal Managers Association to have a voice on Capitol Hill. And to get filtered news and information specific to managing your workforce, join the 50,000 other federal managers who already subscribe and read the free weekly e-report, fedmanager.com. 
I'm Todd Wells, Executive Director of the Federal Managers Association, and I approve this message. Welcome back. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. And Jeff, right before we stopped, you had made the point about the number of people we fire and how that's not what we should be looking at. And, you know, when you talk, pick up a newspaper or anything else these days, that's the only metric people are looking at is government doesn't fire enough federal employees. And I always think that's such a false way of looking at things. Well, what does it, what does, what's the right number then? At what point have we fired enough people? And at what point does not, not firing enough people is probably a problem. Firing too many people is a problem. And, and I've even heard people say, well, you know, you can't let them quit either or retire. You have to fire them. And then they, they point to the private sector as a model. I work in the private sector now, and I can tell you I don't know of any company that sets as a goal we're going to fire X number of people every year. And if somebody isn't working out and they want to quit, great. Then you're not going to have to worry about a, a wrongful termination lawsuit. You're not going to have any kind of termination costs associated with it. So, so you're much better off if someone wants to voluntarily self-select out of the organization. Well, it, it just makes sense. Right. And it's easier on the company. It's easier on the employees and everybody involved. And, you know, from my point of view, if I was looking at a company and 20 percent of the people get fired all the time, why on earth would I go work there? You wouldn't. <laughs> it's just not it's not a good way to do business. And I, so I think that's always that fallacy of the private sector. And you both work in private sector now. And, it, you know, I always tell people it's not like private sectors out there firing every other person. No. Yeah, And in fact, it's once you've put money into, goes back to the development piece, if you're hiring and developing an employee, you want to give them a chance to improve because you've just invested in them, you know, but the private sector also invests in their employees in a different way than sometimes we see in the federal government due to budget constraints. And, and you want to send a, a message to the rest of your workforce that if you stumble, we're not going to just shoot you right away. If, if, if you stumble, we will give you a chance to recover. Right. There is a, a positive risk there. Sometimes you want people to take risks. One of the things that Robert brought up when he was talking about the report, and I, this caught my eye when I was in it, is this idea that NASA has this dual career ladder where they have some employees who move up because they're great technicians and they're not in a supervisory position, others who move up because they're great managers. And I don't see that a lot. I know it's done in certain, you know, maybe in the intelligence community a little bit and a few places here and there. I actually didn't realize NASA had that and didn't realize they were able to do that. But I hear about dual tracking a lot. And I'm curious, since you guys have seen a lot of different systems, if you think that's an appropriate way to do business. Well, that's that's one uh, tool for being able to reward and compensate uh, certain folks who are not cut out to be managers. And Jeff and I have seen that as well in the research and development laboratories in, in the Navy where they have that kind of a structure. But I, I, I would caution that we often talk about some people aren't cut out to be supervisors and some do want to be supervisors. But wanting to be a supervisor doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be a good supervisor. And uh, certain people become supervisors and pursue that track because they want to get promoted and get uh, more compensation. But that's not really you know the best motivation. And I go back to the uh, discussion we had earlier about proper assessment uh, being necessary not only for entry-level jobs, but I think to become a supervisor. And we don't do any of that. Yeah, we're talking a lot about the training that a supervisor needs once he or she is selected. But getting to be a supervisor in the first place, I think, should be uh, more stringent. Uh, again, uh, I see in the private sector uh, a bit more attention being paid to who they select to be part of their of their management team, and we don't do that enough. So I guess if, whether you have uh, a single track or a two track uh, approach uh, for supervision and management, uh, the key thing is who you're selecting to be in that track in the first place. I think that needs to be uh, paid attention to. And it really does have to start out. You have to identify the people and bring them along before they ever get to the management position. Well, you also have to let people know what a leadership position really is. I, I think a lot of people who've never been supervisors think that that it's they think it's a very different job from what it really is. And they think some of them think they get to do a lot of technical work, and that's what they want to do. Some folks think they get to sit in an office with their feet up on the desk. 
And without some sort of realistic job preview where they can see what it's like to be a supervisor, uh, a lot of people who, who might self-select out don't, and then they get into jobs that they're not well-suited for, that they're not happy in, but they don't want to take you know, maybe a, a downgrade and go back to where they came from because they would, they would feel humiliated if they did that. So you really need to give people some sort of realistic preview of what the work really is like. Um, and the other thing you run into is people who, who think that being a supervisor for some reason doesn't involve a lot of people issues. You know, I've had supervisors tell me, I don't have the time to deal with all these people issues. Well, that's your job. It's like the traffic cop saying, well, I don't have time to deal with all this traffic. I mean, these cars are coming at me right and left. I'm just, <laughs> I can't deal with that. And that's your primary goal. And that is your job. Yeah. It's, well, it's interesting because I have, I, I think there's another piece to it. Um, I, I heard a story from someone in the government. They went into a management position and they went into management training. They were in an agency that trains and sort of assesses and has what I think is a, an interesting program. But they had some higher ups come in to talk to them about training. The first person comes in. This is within like an hour of each other. The first, uh, you know, higher up comes in, and I think they were both political, and came in and said, you know, your primary job as a manager is you better know the content of what every single one of your people is doing. You need to be a content specialist on top of it. Hour later, a different person comes in and says, no, no, your job is to be the people person. You need to manage your people content comes second. And so it's interesting because from the top, there were two differing messages coming down. And so part of the issue that we haven't talked about yet is support from the top. That, that's one of the biggest problems you run into when you're dealing with performance problems or conduct problems. Uh, I've worked in, in agencies where people were afraid to take any kind of disciplinary action or afraid to take a performance-based action because they knew that, that they wouldn't get any support, that in one agency I worked in, I won't I won't say which one. I mean, it was it was apparent that nobody in the front office wanted to hear about complaints or problems or issues, and so when you wanted to fire somebody or you wanted to discipline somebody, you couldn't. And then if you could get to that point, no offense to the lawyers, then the lawyers wanted to settle everything, and so you'd never get anybody out of the organization in cases like that because there's no support for the supervisor. And most supervisors are not hired because they're idiots. They're hired because they're smart. They might be smart in technical stuff instead of if leadership skills, but they're hired because they're smart people. If they see that they're going to get no support, it doesn't take long for them to stop trying to take any action because they're not going to waste their time. Right. And that's, that's a big issue there is making sure that people can take the action and do it and get supported. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, just like Jeff stated, you know, I've seen it uh, very often where the fact that you have an employee issue that has to be elevated because there's a proposal and there's a reviewing official and a deciding official and you get other people in the chain of command involved, very often that chain of command is annoyed that they have to deal with this. And and often the, <coughs> in, the supervisor that initiated the action uh, is viewed as somehow being a failure because they, they, they weren't able to keep things under control in their unit. So, you know, it, it's, it's a negative to want to do something that's going to be uncomfortable for people uh, in your chain of command, uh, higher-ups. And that's another evidence of, of lack of support. Easier sometimes to sweep it under the carpet to, you know, outward-facing. It sounds good if you're not having to discipline employees, but it hides those problems. Particularly when you're dealing with either political appointees or military who are rotating in and out every couple of years. They don't want the problems to happen on their watch. And so you end up with, with situations where they just want everything to look good for the two years that they're going to be there, and then they don't worry about what happens afterward. Right, and that's a that's an interesting piece of it. Yeah, but we get, we keep coming back, no matter what we uh, talk about, to the key role of the supervisor, uh, and and I think that is such an important part of of, of the chain uh, that we don't focus in, uh, enough on. And as Jeff indicated, that where there are some uh, uh, supervisors who had a uh, wrong notion of what their job involved, many of them really do feel most comfortable being the technical supervisor of the work being done by their subordinates and are ill-equipped or don't want to deal with the people management issues. As a result, you see more and more uh, that 
by default gets uh, assigned to uh, administrative officers or executive officers. And if you looked at the, the number of such occup- uh, positions in the last 10, 20 years, there's a tre- tremendous growth of these overhead positions, staff positions, who are really doing a lot of the work that should be line management work that should be done by the supervisor. And in- instead, they're being uh, given to executive officers and administrative officers because the supervisors don't want to deal with that with that HR stuff. Right. And if you're having the difficult conversations, if you're doing performance management, if you're as a, a day-to-day thing, and that's what I always say, management should be a daily thing. It's not a once a quarter, once a year, right. once a, you know, however often you do it. If you're doing it on a daily basis, you may not get to those big problems before they, you know, really grow. So, and we're going to stop here real quick for our final break and a word from our sponsor. But when we return, we'll talk a little bit more about how people can take care of performance and and other ways we can deal with these issues. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio. We've been listening to, we've been talking about uh, how you deal with performance issues in the government. And when we stopped, one of the things, Henry, you were talking about, and Jeff, you've touched on as well, and is in the piece that you can do performance management. Not only is it a supervisor's job, but while there are barriers, there aren't insurmountable barriers. It's actually, you can hold people accountable for their good work. You can hold people accountable for poor performance. And if it comes to it, you can remove people if you have some of these in place. But I think it's it's not unheard of that people are dealt with, I think on a day-to-day basis. And I'm, you know, you both have seen this. People are dealt with all the time and people, there are ways where it's going well, but does the system need to be changed? You know, I, I, think, I, I think the system is is not a great system and it could be improved. But I don't know if it's improved in the absence of good selection and training process for leadership positions, if it will make any difference. I could give, I could give somebody who has no skills every woodworking tool known to man and they will not be able to build a piece of furniture because they have no idea what to do with those tools. So I should start out by hiring a cabinet maker and then I should give them training to make the kind of cabinets I want and give them the tools to do it. We hire people to be supervisors because they're good technical people. Then we don't give them any, any training to help them handle those hard skills that some people like to call soft skills. Uh, And then a year or two later, we look back and say, wow, you know, Betty Lou was so great. Where did she go wrong? Well, she went wrong taking a supervisory job in our organization because we didn't do anything to help her. And, and I think that's the problem. If, you, if you're going to, to start giving people more and bigger hammers, you have to train them how to do the things that should come before that and train them how to deal with the problems in an organization while they're small problems and before they become very big problems that result in you having to, to commit the the organizational form of capital punishment, which is firing an employee. Well, and the interesting thing is is that, as you said, it, people want to tackle one-off pieces of these, and you can't right. do that. This is a, you either have to reform the whole system or you're still never going to get there. And part of that, I think, is, you know, dare I say this, and I said this off air, is the general schedule because for a lot of folks, the only way to move up, you know, or the perception of the only way to move up, take on greater responsibility, is to take on a supervisory role as a 14 or a 15, uh, you know, and in the private sector, a lot of folks would say, well, you don't have that sort of linear system. And so there's different ways to take on responsibility and maybe get a raise or some other thing. And so I don't know, clearly that plays a piece in it as well. Well, yes, as we said earlier, I think these are all interrelated systems. So we start with the hiring process, the onboarding process, uh, the, the selection of supervisory process. 
But in answer to your question about you know performance management, I think tinkering with that's not going to help. I mean, because I think we have a misguided notion about what performance management should be about. And and traditionally, we've we've looked at it as the GAO report seems to is that how do we use it in order to identify and weed out poor performers instead of a tool for identifying and motivating and rewarding people so that everybody's doing a good job? I mean, what's, what purpose should this serve in the, in the context of how do we make a good, efficient uh, working government? It's so, And I'm, I'm guilty of the same thing. As I recall, being in, in, in the policymaking role at OPM over performance management, you know, the focus was you know, how many rating levels should we have and what should be the rating definition and what should be the numerical scale and what's the conversion scale? We've got two highly successful and, and one meets successful and how does that convert to the overall rating? And the whole emphasis was on process. It wasn't on the outcome and what you're trying to do to, to make sure that people uh, perform well and rewarded for their accomplishments. Instead, it was structure and what should the form look like and uh, where does the supervisor sign and how many uh, signatures should be on the form? We focus on process and not the desired outcome. And not the people, too. You know, you lose the people in that piece. Well, and, and I think Henry's absolutely spot on on this. You know, when you look at what, what our goal should be, our goal should be carry out the mission of the agency. How do you carry out the mission of the agency? Largely with people. So how do you get the right people? Once you get those people, how do you align them in a way so that they're working together? How do you give them goals that let you know, let them know what they should be striving to do? And then how do you make corrections along the way? Those are things that we should talk about when we talk about performance management. But Henry's right. We talk about forms. We talk about conversion formulas. And we talk about a lot of other things that have nothing to do with performance. We also talk about what the employee has to do. And we rarely have a discussion about what the agency should do. If I expect you to do three things, there are probably people that have to work with you to do that. I probably have to do something to help you do it. But we only talk about what the employee has to do and not the agency's role and the team's role. And, and we do very little things as, as individuals sitting on islands. We have to approach performance differently if we expect to change anything and help agencies accomplish their missions. That's been one of my concerns, actually. There's this push for, you know, cross-agency work and this enterprise view, but our performance system is still individually tailored, and we've got some <laughs> loud banging in the background here. But, uh, it, you know, it's still individually tailored. So when you're having people work on cross-agency projects, how on earth do you do their performance management because it depends on a whole host of different people and different factors to achieve this broader goal that's not even in the line of sight necessarily of their mm -hmm. focused agency mission. Right. And uh, in many organizations uh, in the private sector, the uh, performance management system includes uh, elements such as uh, contributions. And it's not as individually focused as you're saying, Jenny. It's more like so how is a person fitting into the organization, the corporate values? How are they contributing? How are they coming along in furthering the, in the government's uh, parlance, mission goals? Uh, and there should be that kind of focus instead of merely, you know, you're, in this job you're required to process 37 claims per quarter. How are you doing? You know, and that's all we focus on. And I think the single largest reform you could make would be to change the law and regulations to very clearly incorporate team performance as part of it. We don't work in a vacuum. We don't work on islands. And if we, if we can't evaluate how people work as part of a team and how that team functions, it's very difficult to, to actually then evaluate the way we get work done. Well, and that's, we're seeing more and more push to teamwork too. Not that it hasn't always been there, but now there's a real push to that. And, and I think that would be helpful too. You touched, we have just a few minutes left, but Jeff, you had said something about political appointees coming and going. And a lot of times they're doing performance management oversight too of senior executives in particular. Uh, but so if those pieces aren't there where they may be seeing and they don't understand how the performance management system works or they come from the private sector with a different way and you have none of those flexibilities to rate people under teams or some other structure, it makes it really difficult. It does. And and the, the political appointees in particular get very little uh, training on things like this. Uh, the White House is doing some, some training in partnership with the, the Partnership for Public mm -hmm. Service for political appointees. 
but they don't get a huge amount of training. And, and it makes it very difficult for them to cope with the federal system, particularly when most appointees come in having never worked in the federal government. And the government is a very different animal from what they were used to. Especially when, as Henry said, the processes are very set in stone in some respects. Some of these are outlined by statute. Others are regulation or just years of buildup in how it's done. And and it's just not done the same way, especially if you came from a small company versus a Fortune 500 company. And so one of the things I've noticed that's been out there for years and it wasn't touched upon in the GAO report is onboarding for political appointees right. as well and holding them accountable as well for having a piece in this performance pie. You can't just say, eh, I'll be out in 18 months. I'm not going to worry about it. Right. You have to be accountable every day as well as a senior leader in your agency. Absolutely right. And that's something I'm hoping that we see more of as as this goes on. And I certainly, you know, I don't think there's the last of this conversation by any means because, you know, performance management seems to be one of the top issues right now that I hear outside groups talking about, that I hear Congress talking about, um, especially as we have some of these quote-unquote scandals that's well, con- driving con- it. Congress is talking a lot about giving people bigger hammers. And if they don't address the, the, a comprehensive approach to performance and to, to dealing with misconduct, then I don't think they're going to make a difference. They'll be able to say, yes, look at this, we gave them a big hammer. But in the end, it won't change anything. And the, the intent should be to change things for the better, not just to score some political points. Well, and I think people don't want to use hammers. I mean, as we said, people don't like to use, have uncomfortable conversations. I think human nature for most people is not to go out and say, how can I take this hammer and start whacking employees with it? That's not not what people want to do, and it's not good for the agency. So my hope is that somewhere <laughs> we'll have this conversation where rational minds on this will will prevail, but I don't think we've seen the end of it by any means. So Capitol Hill, <laughs> rational minds. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's always okay. that I'm a glass half full kind of person. So, but at any rate, I wanted to thank both of you for coming on. This is a conversation that's, I know you've both had a lot and we could continue to have for quite a while. So I appreciate you being on the show and sharing your thoughts with us and like to have you both back at some point to say, okay, we've talked about what's out there. Now, what exactly would you do to change the system as a whole? So, and Jeff, I know I'll let you give a plug for your blog real quick. I know people can read some of those thoughts out there. I, I actually did a whole series on performance management on my blog at chiefhro.com. And so encourage folks to read it because it's uh, good thoughts out there and a little different than what folks are hearing. So. Thank you. Henry, have a great weekend. Thank, thank you for you. joining us. Thanks for us. having me here. Enjoyed it. Absolutely. And Jeff, thank you as well. And that's all the time we have for the show. Thanks for joining us. Fed Talks brought to you by the Federal Employment Law Firm of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth. Have a good weekend. Tuesday on Federal News Radio. Every Tuesday, learn how technology inspires innovation. Tuesday mornings at 9, it's Federal Tech Talk with John Gilroy, the latest on products that help breathe life into federal IT policy. And at 11, join Federal News Radio's Jason Miller for Ask the CIO to hear from your agency's top tech leader how technology is changing government. Tech Tuesday on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 a.m.